What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. One of the gains, if you will, the abolition movement has made since the George Floyd rebellions has been the mainstreaming of conversations and practices about alternatives to law enforcement. Though, as our guest today points out, these gains are stepping stones, absolutely not the ultimate destination. Areas we've seen this play out include the development and implementation of community responses that do not include a badge and a gun to things like uh, mental health crisis, substance abuse, and interpersonal violence. While this work seems new to large swaths of Americans, the work, analysis, and advocacy for these shifts has been going on for decades. We're joined this morning by someone who's been on the front lines of these efforts for a long, long time now. Our guest today is Andrea J. Ritchie. Ritchie is a nationally recognized expert on policing and criminalization and supports organizers across the country who are working to build safer communities. She is a co-founder of Interrupting Criminalization and the author of Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color. Her latest book is No More Police, a case for abolition, which she co-authored with Marion Kaba, a leading prison and police abolitionist. Thank you so much for joining us today, Andrea. Thanks so much for having me, Kat. I'm always excited to be in conversation with you about these topics and more. Same, same. Uh, And it seems it's the only time we actually get to connect often. (laughs) Um, I want to start the interview with a little bit about you. You ask a question at the beginning of the book to readers. uh, What was the watershed moment for those of us who came into this work? For me, it was the murder of Oscar Grant in 2009. What was yours? I, as I've thought about this, I mean, it's been multiple moments, right? It's been the fact that n- no one in my family um, received safety from police when they needed it. It was my own experience of violence from police. And it was also growing up outside the U.S., including in um, Haiti under a military dictatorship in which the police were much more Um, visibly understood to be an oppressive force. And it was also um, the brutal beating of Rodney King, the killing of Amadou Diallo, um, the murder of Taisha Miller, the murder of Latanya Haggerty, these moments of more um, spectacular police violence that are turning points for many of us. But I think as we point out in the book that it's, it's multiple moments there. It includes moments when, we experience the violence of policing when people in our communities experience the violence of policing or that time when we called for help and it didn't come or worse yet, it came for us. And so I think those are the less spectacular moments. Those are the moments, the everyday moments when we realize that policing is not doing what it says it does that are watershed moments for many of us. And they, they come to a head in the moments of spectacular police violence, but they also are those moments of reckoning are also accumulations of smaller moments that lead up to that. Yeah. I'm actually glad you said that. I was in the middle of a, middle of a talk a couple of years ago and I was asked that question and I, I gave my usual, you know, Oscar Grant story. And then later remembering that, you know, my father uh, who was struggling with substance abuse issues when I was a kid and all of the moments I saw him pulled over, dragged out of the car, beat by police, ultimately incarcerated, that that actually for me, uh, was very much the beginning, though never thought that it would lead to to here. 
talk actually uh, because of what you just said you, t- you you talked about the murders of of some of our folks as uh, spectacular moments of police violence so i actually would like you to start by defining if you will police violence because a lot of folks rele- relegate this to just the incidents when they kill us but i would love for you to paint a broader picture of the violence of policing both physical and and psychological in the myriad of ways it plays out in our communities and i think it's that that turn of phrase that you just used, the violence of policing rather than police violence that actually encapsulates what we're talking about in No More Police. That it's not that policing exists as a neutral thing and then occasionally um, there's one cop, one department, one practice that's particularly violent that we might be able to address or tweak or um, reform in some way, that it's actually that policing is violence in and of itself. That is what policing is. And then that enables us to see the violence that comes from one encounter with a police officer, like the ones that you just described with your father or a young person like Michael Brown walking home from school in the middle of the road or um, a young person who might be smoking weed outside, how one encounter with a police officer can change the entire course of their lives, of the lives of people in their family and in their community, and of the whole society that is then deprived of the gifts and possibility embodied by someone who is then thrown into a cage or criminalized in some way or exiled or deported or um, removed from among us in some way and who is not given, if they did do harm, the opportunity to heal and we are collectively not given the opportunity to transform the conditions that produced harm. And so that to me is very much a part of the violence of policing. The other part of the violence of policing is the resources they loot from our communities for the things that we need. And it could not be more stark right now when, you know, the president is saying we're going to throw $13 billion to putting more cops on the street when people are facing the lifting of eviction moratoriums, where people are facing levels of economic crisis that they we haven't faced in a generation, where we're facing a climate crisis in which we're literally at the brink of of, dis- of complete destruction of um, certainly humanity. The planet will probably survive, but we won't. And I really think that that is part of the violence of policing. It's not just the baton hitting the body. It's not just the bullet taking the life. It's not just the sexual assault by the cop who was sent to respond to the sexual assault. It's, it's also just the violence of what policing does to our society, to our imaginations, to our communities, to our resources, um, and to us as individuals and collectively. And then there's been some studies that have come out about the psychological impact of even having police literally occupy our communities, right? Or, Or what it means for a black or brown person for a cop to drive by or walk by them. There may not even be any engagement, but because that we walk with this threat of the violence of policing every day in our communities, that it does severe and, and ongoing psychological and emotional damage to our folks. Absolutely. And it, and it manifests in, in physical conditions as well. I remember hearing um, a researcher present a study at uh, Michigan at a Martin Luther King event, I think in 2018 maybe, who talked about Black women, the, the correlation that they found between high blood pressure rates 
and heart conditions and conditions that were stress-related among Black women who live in highly policed neighborhoods. And obviously, highly policed neighborhoods are the most often impoverished and, and denied resources and subject to what Ruth Wilson Gilmore calls organized abandonment. So there's many contributing factors to Black women experiencing high stress when Black women experience highest rates of poverty, highest rates of unemployment, and are often caring for people who are criminalized, criminalized themselves, experiencing sexual violence and harassment by cops and people in community every day. There's so many reasons why um, those stress-related conditions would manifest in these communities. But the violence of policing, both as Black women experience it and as members of their family and community who they're caring for and concerned about experience it, most definitely are contributing factors. I'm glad that you made that point uh, that it is in fact the communities with the least amount of resources, the highest rates of poverty that have the most police. Um, it's also where we see so-called, you know, high levels of so-called crime play out um, often because people are forced to figure out how to survive in the underground economy because they're locked out of the above ground one. And yet there's this argument, Andrea, <laughs> that more police means less crime. Um, but if you're going strictly by data, it's the communities with those resources, with the least amount of so-called crime, um, that have the least amount of police. It's really stark in terms of the recent announcement um, of throwing more police at communities that are struggling three years into a deadly pandemic and economic crisis and, and certainly an ongoing climate crisis, um, that there, there are two visions of the world. One in which a resources are increasingly concentrated and the perimeters around them are increasingly policed um, and more violently policed. And then there's another vision of the world where everybody has what they need to survive and thrive and resources are distributed equitably people's needs are met. We have everything we need to, to reach our fullest human potential. We have education, we have healthcare, we have housing that's accessible and um, healthy and sustainable. And we have, we are in relationship with the earth and with each other in ways that are sustainable and respectful. And, and those are the competing visions of the world that we are fighting for right now. And so I do think that the one that you're describing where communities are increasingly abandoned to economic climate and other forms of violence that flow from uh, that abandonment. And then the response is just more and more and more and more and more police and punishment and criminalization and caging. And that is a long trajectory that we describe in No More Police um, in terms of the implementation of neoliberal economic policies. And we talk about how those are uh, just a current manifestation of racial capitalism, which creates crises and then solves them with more criminalization and then and then more criminalization and more criminalization and policing and punishments. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Andrea J. Ritchie, who has co-authored a new book with Marion Kaba called No More Police, A Case for Abolition. A Andrea, we're in uh, the next phase or another phase in, uh, of our movement. Um, post the murder of George Floyd and the international rebellions um, that took place. Um, I've heard plenty of folks refer to the George Floyd rebellions in this particular moment in our movement as the beginning. But that moment 
clearly we, we would not be here uh, without decades and decades of organizing that took place prior. Can you talk a bit about the ebb and flow of movement and how each burst of energy has been built on the burst of energy that came prior? And then the second part of that, the unsexy, unmedia paid attention to work that does and must happen in between. <laughs> So much to say there. And I do, I do. um, Well, just to the last point first, I was just thinking the other day, I was like organizing, I'm part of organizing many things at all times. Cause I think that's the the thing about this book is that Mariam and I wrote this book while doing the work. So we did it kind of, you know, in between that day-to-day grind that's not visible or glamorous or glorious, right. Where I'm, you know, making sure people have childcare stipends to get to the meeting. And I'm making sure that, you know, we have enough post-it notes and that I've printed out the agenda and that I've made sure that people have transportation to get to and from. Like that's the unglamorous work that we are still very much engaged in every day. That is what creates the spaces for conversations to be possible for. And there are hundreds of thousands of organizers around the country who are engaged in that work every day that we want to lift up and celebrate for one. Um, And yes, for two it's not even that, you know, um, things come from, go from one outburst to the next. There's actually many, many, many years of quiet, um, less visible day-to-day organizing that happens that makes moments like the uprisings of 2020 possible. So you have very much been part of that, right? You have been in Oakland fighting this massive investment of the city budget into the police department instead of into the things that Oaklanders need for years. You were calling to defund OPD in 2014, 2015, before anyone had said the word defund um, in most of the country, right? Um, And the folks in Minneapolis had also been calling to defund the Minneapolis Police Department for um, years prior to the moment where that call to action caught fire and spread across the country and had actually won some divestment and then lost the next year and then came back again. And that story is told by the folks in Minneapolis themselves by Black Visions yeah. in the forward to No More Police. And then we talk about it throughout the book as well. And then even that wasn't the beginning, right? The beginning we trace back in the introduction to basically the moment where the prison industrial complex began looting resources in earnest from public education, from public institutions, from public good in the early 90s when the prison boom in California and across the country really took off. But even before then, the Panthers were saying, we want an end to police violence and we want land, food and education. So that's a demand to defund the police and fund the community, right? And before that, um, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois was calling for the finishing, the unfinished business of ending the legal end of chattel slavery, which is to create an abolition democracy that is restructured in such a way that we are eliminating the vestiges of chattel slavery and anti-Blackness that undergirded it and settler colonialism that undergirded it. And that requires getting rid of police and investing in a society where Black people can survive and thrive. So I think there's many iterations and each one builds on the next. But what's important to know is that they don't spring out of nowhere. They spring out of that 
quiet day-to-day conversation with neighbors about what makes more safety for us. How can we create that for ourselves and each other? What resources do we need? How do we build the power to demand those resources and force those who are holding them to, to get their hands off of them? How do we force the people who have their boots on our neck to get them off of them? How do we build power? And I feel like that's the piece that gets lost and people just think that there's a, a spark, there's a flame, and then it dies out and it's gone. And I think right now there's a lot of people, a lot of pundits proclaiming the end yes. of the defund movement. And they are so far from, right. I mean, they're, they're just far <laughs> from it. And all they need to do is go to defundpolice.org and they'll see that hundreds and thousands of people across the country are still in conversation about what makes safer communities. They're still trying to assemble the skills and resources that are needed to create that for each other. They're still demanding them from the state and from the billionaires who are holding them. And they're still um, fighting for the world that we all want to live in. And, and people will continue to do that, whether, you know, someone declares their movement dead or not. And I think, frankly, as Mariam <laughs> often says, if you keep having to declare something dead, maybe you have a problem. <laughs> Um, which is a great segue to where I want to go next. I, I do want to shout out the forward of your book. I, I didn't know uh, about the organizing that had taken place prior in the way that I do now. And there's this great, uh, great, great sentence. Organizing can never take credit for the energy and will of the community. What it can do is provide a container to understand the moment and build toward collective solutions to address our individual pain. Big inhale with that sentence. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's talk about defund, Andrea Mm. J. Ritchie. To your point, our movement is not dead (laughs) Uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, You did a bit of the history. I'd like um, to spend some time talking about the pushback. I haven't gotten a reporter to take me up on doing the FOIA request, but I am proof positive that if they did, we're going to see a directive from the federal government that went out to municipalities across the country that said, blame the violent crime uptick on defund. And here's the messaging you can use to do that. Um, And the idea would be that it's the folks that we're organizing, right? Black folks and brown folks who are also the most vulnerable to the upticks in violent crime that would then become the loudest condemners of defund. Um, that's part one response to that. And then part two, you, you mentioned Biden and his flooding, uh, his call to flood our cities with more cops. The significance of the fact that this backlash was spearheaded by both Republicans and Democrats and what that should signal to, to us about the limitations of transformation coming through current electoral paradigms. Yeah, I think the one disagreement I'd have with you about that is, Kat, I don't think they need to send out a memo because that's a playbook that they've been working for decades, right? And so, right? They just, every single time their legitimacy is challenged in the way that it was challenged, um, you know, in the 60s and 70s and certainly, you know, after Mike Brown was killed and again this time, they reach for their most reliable weapon to slam it down and that's fear. And they will take every consequence of their denial of resources and abandonment of communities and of of racial capitalism and call it individual violence and place the fear that 
violence is going up in people's hearts and, you know, play the propaganda movies and TV shows and get, let the, the police fraternal associations get on the bullhorn and, and cry, you know, danger crime is going up. You're going to be, you know, vulnerable in your house, blame everything on, you know, um, police feeling attacked, you know, feeling bad because people are questioning the violence that they're allowed to engage in. Right. And then, and that's, that's their most reliable weapon and it works every single time. So they don't even need a, they don't need a memo. They, they know the playbook. They're like, Oh, legitimacy challenge. Let's come back with, you will not be safe without us. And, you know, David, um, Korea and Tyler Wall write a really beautiful book called Violent Order that we, um, well, beautiful, it's, it's, it's revealing. We talk about it a lot in, in No More Police, where they just talk about the ways in which police have been posited since, you know, sort of the rise of, you know, current settler colonial racial capitalist states as necessary for order to exist. And there's this whole story that without them, there is no safety possible because we are going to immediately descend into the purge, Lord of the Flies, Blade Runner, whatever it is, whatever story it is that was your generation. Um, Birth of a nation. Exactly. Right. And those are, those are stories that are deeply embedded in our brains. And so I think that it's not, again, they don't need a memo because they can just reach into what they have already placed and planted in our imaginations about what a world without the violence of policing looks like. And then they, we can, they just then press play. And then we kind of, you know, the media regurgitates it and, and, you know, they play on folks fears and communities to regurgitate it and, and, and replay it. And I think it, it really speaks to how many levels we need to be doing this work on, right? It's not just facts and stats, right? We're talking about speaking to people's most basic need for safety or to or to feel safer or in relationship with other people um we talk a lot in the book about how safety is sort of uh sold to us as like a product that you can have complete safety and only the cops can provide it to you and only you know prison and and punishment and surveillance and exile can provide it to you except it never really does Um, and that whole equation doesn't include the violence of policing itself in it um, right, we don't count the the violence of policing, the murders, the rapes, the beatings, the assaults that are committed by cops in the crime stats, um, and and then we're left to believe that you know every, the fact that we don't have safety now just means we need more police, and then the fact that we still don't have safety now means we just need more police, and then we still don't have safety now we just need more. It's always more. So I think that that story that they're telling is an old one. And it's it's more deeply embedded than sort of statistics and um, and facts. It's really about how we understand society and what is required to um, to have things function in a way that all of us can can enjoy greater safety. And and it's a, as I said, it's a fundamentally different vision. Some of us understand that it's about resources and it's about relationships and it's about relative safety you know we the whole planet could be hit by a meteor any second now like it's all relative right <laughs> you know um it's 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 you know mariam talks about how it's relative to whether you have money to pay your rent whether you have you know you're by yourself or with other people whether you have your health needs met or you don't whether you feel like you could get a job if this one ended like all that it's all relative what we experience as safety or well-being um 
and and we need to understand that the more resources we have, the more relationships we have, the more skills we have, and the more capacity we have to be in community with each other, um, the the safer we're going to be. And and it's not about that we need these armed agents of the state to make that possible. Right. And, and, and yes, to it being an old playbook, I, I think more what I was referring to is a comms person and journalist, right? I read headlines and stories from all over the country. And it's like verbatim, verbatim, yeah. the language, yeah. right? And I, and I guess I just don't give Oakland's uh, Mayor Libby Schaff credit for doing that all by her little self. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and another part of the backlash was what they tried to do within movement. And uh, I was on a talk show that hasn't aired yet. It will. But one of the things that the host did was assert that the defund movement had been hijacked by abolitionists. Hmm. So this attempt to split folks that may have varying levels of understanding or commitment to abolition from defund being an abolitionist tactic that we can practice right now. Yeah, I think it was very interesting. The initial response was to try and, and this is this is sort of what Ruth Wilson Gilmore talks about in terms of capitalism trying to save itself from itself. The initial response to the power of the defund demand uh, coming out of Minneapolis and spreading across the country was to try and absorb it, to try and say, yeah, sure, what they mean is we shouldn't be asking <laughs> cops to do all the things that we're asking them to do. Poor cops, they're not being asked to do too much. And we should, you know, maybe ask some social workers to ride along with them to kind of share the load or, yeah, okay, maybe maybe $13 billion or $100 billion a year for cops, you know, is, is maybe a little too much. Or we should cut it to $99 billion. You know, there was really, and we were like, that's why Mariam wrote an op-ed for the New York Times saying, yes, we actually do want to abolish the police. That is where this demand comes from. It's not... There's no hijacking. It's where it, it's the root of it, um, which then, you know, led to the invitation to write no more police. And um, so I think, I think that was the initial attempt to absorb it. And then once they realized that it, there was not going to be any absorbing of it, um, then they launched the full on frontal attack uh, to, to attempt to discredit it. And to, as you said, attempt to mobilize people in communities for whom there are no resources other than police offered for every single conflict, harm, or need to say, you know, they're trying to take away that one thing that you have, the one number you have to call, they're trying to take it away. And to have people say, well, I don't necessarily want more police, but I want something. And if that's all that's on offer, then even if it feels like Russian roulette, I'm going to want something over nothing and not, and really kind of misrepresenting also what the demand is, which is not to abandon our communities to violence. That's what's happening that's right. now, right? That's, like, that's what the, that's what's happening now with the police. It's to give back the resources to those communities that the police are stealing so that we can actually have a better chance at, at the kind of um, increased safety and well-being in communities that we're being denied right now. All right, here's, here's a question I wouldn't ask to any guest, and I would probably only ask to someone who I know knows my politics, yet it is something I've been chewing on as I think about what winning looks like and who we have to reach uh, to, to grow our movement. Um, question, uh, is there, and feel free to do a full-on pushback, <laughs> is there a segment of society who may need this divorce as an initial step 
into the waters of broader understanding and acceptance of abolitionist ideas. Is there a group of folks for whom abolition still remains? So one of the things we say when we work with families, right, in the immediacy of their loss is that that's, that's not the time to politicize them, right? That, at that time, a lot of them are calling for uh, use of the carceral state and, and all sorts of other things. I work with a family that are Trump supporters to this day. Mm. Um, black family. Uh, I, I've really been chewing on that. And, and I'll be honest with you, I vacillate back and forth and some of my the stuff I put out vacillates back and forth uh, in terms of who I'm messaging to in the moment. But I, I would really value your thoughts there. I really appreciate your candor about that, Kat. You know, you and I have been in, in conversations together, you know, in the rocking chairs at the Highlander Center and other places where I've seen you really grappling with, with this question. And I really appreciate that. And, you know, we say pretty clearly in the book, not everyone has to be an abolitionist. The invitation is to just be real about what's happening and to be real about what police are and are what they're for. And to be real about what the last hundred years of history of reforms has taught us. And to be real about the chances that your family will, the, the family members of people killed by police will ever actually get anything resembling actual accountability or reparations from the system that killed their family member and then justified it. And I think that's where the invitation is, is just to, to, to be real. And as we say in the book, not everyone has to be abolitionists. And we can all travel down a road that leads to greater safety for our communities and greater individual and collective well-being. And some folks might be like, yeah, I get off at this exit. Our hope is that by walking with us or traveling with us, you'll under, you'll stay on for a few more exits, right? And eventually, <laughs> eventually you'll, you'll come with us the whole way, um, which, sure. you know, is an ongoing process and an ongoing unfolding and, and is happening now and in the past and in the future. It's not that abolition is some destination, as you pointed out, there are communities now that are um, operating without policing and punishment in ways that, that are very similar to what we describe. And, and that's, you know, within carceral states and beyond them. So uh, we want to recognize that abolition is present, that we have had abolitionist pasts, um, and that we are living into abolitionist futures. And so we invite folks to join us for what they can. What we don't want is for people to be operating from uh, untruths or unreality. And it's just mm -hmm. unrealistic to believe that we can contain or control or limit or reform the violence of policing. It's inherent to the institution. It's what the institution is for. And so then the question is, do we want to give it any legitimacy, any more fuel, any more fire by turning to it in some situations? Um, the second thing is, you know, what's the likelihood of success? And I also have worked with families. And I, like you say, in that moment, I'm not going to say when someone's burying their loved one, I'm not going to say, you know, the thing you're asking for is problematic. I am going to say, <laughs> here is the likelihood that you will get what first, I'll say, what do you need right now? First, that's the first thing I'll say, what do you need right now? And if it's about I need, you know, to cover rent, I need childcare for the funeral, I need, you know, whatever, we'll do that. And if they say, I need the cop who did this to go to jail, I'll say, what are you trying to accomplish there? What do you want? What do you need? And then be in a conversation and invitation to think about whether you're actually going to get that from the system that killed your loved one or harmed your loved one or that harmed you. And then to invite people into an imagination of what might actually get us closer to what you're needing or looking for and thinking about what accountability really looks like, what repair looks like, what reparations looks like, what 
stopping the thing that killed your loved one in the first place would look like. You know, I, I want to build a world where Breonna Taylor would still be here. That means we have to end the drug war. That doesn't mean we mess with what piece of paper cops can go to someone's door and bust <laughs> it down at three in the morning and how long they have to yeah. wait after they knock at three in the morning when someone's dead asleep, right? Before they come barging in guns blazing. I want to end the drug war that sent the cops to her door. And I want to end the practice of gentrification and economic displacement and organized abandonment that also sent them to her door. And then that means I have we have to tear down structures that will, unfortunately, if left standing, will make the next Breonna Taylor possible. And I don't want that. So that's the invitation I'm in with people is to really think about what's actually going to achieve the goals that you want and whether the, the things that we're turning to are going to get us there. And, and I think that's really what the case for abolition is. And that's why I've written for years about police violence against Black women, queer, and trans people. Because I think when you look at policing through those lenses, you get much more quickly to understanding that policing is not getting us to the things that we want, which is a world where Black women, girls, queer, and trans people can survive and thrive. So then we need to start investing in something else. Um, I super appreciate your answer to that question. Do not be surprised if it finds its way into messaging that <laughs> I uh, play, continue to play with as I, as I grapple with this, right? Uh, and, and really grapple with folks, particularly those that have lost their loved ones to street violence. That's where the conversation, especially in Oakland, we you know have now surpassed the number of homicides uh, of last year and people are living in real fear. Um what is the offering that 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 we have to give them that's going to interrupt street violence right now not in a couple of years when divestment and reinvestment happens but but right now um and i do think that you you all and many others are no violence interruption programs that work yep right and those and, are not yeah. the programs that are funded the ones that are funded exactly. are the ones that work with collaborate with and promote the police and not the ones that put money in the pockets of people who are engaged in activities that they're engaged in to survive because, because they have no other way to survive, as you said earlier. And so um, I think that what we can offer those folks is that we will fight for the programs that work, that we will participate in and support the programs that work, and we will continue to fight for the resources that people need. And I, I, I think there's there's more promise in that than saying we'll fight for more cops that might shoot your loved one or might shoot you or might, or will certainly take the resources away from the things that might actually improve everyone's lives. Well, we certainly never fight for more cops. <laughs> no, definitely. Um, I want to get into the case for, for abolition and the three central elements that, that you lay out. But first, because I never or I rarely get to do it on the show, is talk about some good stuff. You are working with organizations that are doing defund all over this country. Give me one of your favorite inspirational stories. I can't. I can't focus on one. There's so many. Just, just okay, say that. So, give me so one. Many, there's so many, Kat. <laughs> I mean, there really is. And I, I, I hate to use one because I think that ends up being the notion that like we have to replace one thing, policing with one thing. Okay, wait, instance, let's, right? let's do this then. Let's yes. do this then. Because I've been on these calls. Right. Let's talk about the dozens and dozens exactly. and dozens of organizers that have joined your semi-regular calls as, as you help, uh, help, help folks navigate. 
um, how how to get there or, or how to develop uh, a mental health crisis response that doesn't engage in law enforcement. Talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that is a much more exciting thing, right? Like, people could okay. go to defundpolice.org and see what people are organizing around the country. You can go to millionexperiments.com and see how people are creating safety in their communities. And that's the thing, is it? there's no one thing because every community is different. Every person, safety looks different for every person, for every community, for every family, for every region for every you know part of the world and so million experiments responds to that instead of trying to respond to everything with one dude with a gun and handcuffs right um and pepper spray and instead you know offers a plethora of responses and you're you're right and this is where why i just chuckle every time i read defund movements are dead like in 2020 and 2021 we hosted at the community resource hub weekly two hour zoom calls weekly every single week to talk about strategies around divestment around budget fights around building community-based safety strategies fighting police unions what reparations to family members of people killed by police would look like and every week 40 to 60 people from around the country representing dozens and dozens of organizations would come in throw in throw down tell stories, um, share strategies, share information about officials like, oh, your police chief in Seattle is moving to Atlanta. Great. Atlanta and Seattle are talking. What are we doing? What are we doing? Right. This city administrator is moving from Minneapolis to Austin. Great. What, what's the strategy? How do we do this? Oh, this is what the cops did in our town. Great. When we're fighting, we'll make sure that we have a strategy to block that strategy. I mean, it was amazing. And I think that, and that is continuing. There's a call tomorrow um, where we'll be talking about 911 and 988 and what the whole dispatch system does to community-based safety strategies mm. that don't involve cops, which I know you've been organizing around in Oakland. And then also, you know, why when we think we're moving something out of policing, like through something like 988, that it often leads right back to policing, either through coercive medical treatment or literally people just then send the cops anyway. So I think we, we are in conversation across the country with everyone doing just the most incredible creative strategies and organizing and translocal strategizing um, that just makes the whole movement incredibly powerful and incredibly durable in the face of attack, right? Because when those, you know, hard stories were coming and the big bash lash and the front lash was coming hard, 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 people kept coming to those calls and hearing each other fighting and going to the budget fight and, and staying there till 11, 12 p.m., even when it was clear that they were going to lose that night's budget fight, that they were still making sure that community members could speak up and and speak their truth and make their demands. And that, I think, is the power of movement and organizing. So I don't want to tell you one story because there are hundreds of stories of people doing incredible things across the country. And you have, and, and the folks at uh, Anti-Police Terror Projects have been protagonists in one incredible story that I encourage folks to learn about. Um, and then there are folks in you know, Raleigh, North Carolina, and Durham, North Carolina, who've been protagonists in another incredible story. There are folks in Oklahoma who were fighting under horrifying conditions and still courageously leading demands um, to reduce their police budget and, and, and so on and so on and so on and so on and everything in between. I encourage folks to go to defundpolice.org and also the Interrupting Criminalization has a YouTube page where we have some videos that you can, if you don't believe it, you can see it. Two things. That talk show that I'm not naming yet uh, also had on it the former police chief of Seattle 
boy, is she a, she a piece of work. Um, and then the second thing for folks is that there is this great thread on Twitter that was posted on September 10th. Uh, the tweeter's name is Salty Sicky, um, <laughs> who refers to themselves as a suicidologist, someone who has experienced chronic suicidality since the age of nine, but an amazing breakdown of the harms of the 988 lifeline. So if folks want that analysis, I would encourage you to go check out that tweet. And also to check out Trans Lifeline because they Yes, have, and they, he mentions it. Yep. Yes. So Trans Lifeline is an organization that um, provides crisis response to trans and gender nonconforming people who has a campaign right now with a bill of rights for crisis callers um, and a fact sheet and just sort of really helping folks understand what 988 means and how it might lead right back to policing or coercive medical treatment and what crisis response lines and organizations and communities should be offering people um, and committing to with people. So hopefully folks can support that campaign. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We are talking to Andrea J. Ritchie, who has co-authored a new book with Miriam Kaba called No More Police, A Case for Abolition. Three central elements uh, in your case for abolition, which I would like you to walk through now. We, we've done a lot of it, but I want to walk through them one by one. One, police don't promote safety. They prevent it. Um, say more about why they cannot and, and will never deliver safety. It goes back to what I was saying earlier that so many people have sort of written about or articulated and, and not just people who write books, but, you know, the, as we were saying, the Panthers and, um, and people who are directly impacted by the prison industrial complex and, and many folks throughout history, which is that the purpose of policing is to maintain a particular social order. And so, and they are given free reign to use violence as they see fit in order to do that. And occasionally there'll be a prosecution or some sort of accountability for a cop as a way to sort of indicate that, no, no, if, if it goes too far, we'll rein it in, right? But in reality, cops have free reign and um, to enforce existing social order. And, and so the notion that we're going to try and get them to do something that they're not is, is really just an illusion that really continues to, to take away our energy to actually create the things that, that we want in society. So I just really, I think that history teaches this, us this, but I think also the present teaches us this, right? So if you see, for instance, you know, where police spend their time, they spend very little time responding to urgent crisis calls involving violence. They spend a lot of their time rounding up unhoused people. They spend a lot of their time harassing young people going to and from school. They spend a lot of time, you know, policing drug use They um, or, you know, drug possession. They spend a lot of time criminalizing poverty, chasing people like Alton Sterling for selling CDs, um, chasing people like Eric Garner for you know, selling Lucy's, killing someone like Yvette Henderson on an allegation that, you know, she shoplifted something from the Home Depot or Shelly Fry or, you know, there's just so much that makes it clear that they're protecting property and capital and a particular social order around race and gender and sexuality and nation that, um, that allows for concentration of wealth and protects um, white supremacy. And, and so 
one of the things that we talk about in the book and, and, and quote um, sort of systems theory, which is a system is what a system does, right? So you just kind of need to look at what the system, what police are doing. That is what they are. <laughs> They're not, it's not an aberration. It's, it is their function. And to, to localize uh, some of that for, for folks, in 2019, only 4% of the 911 calls that came in were for so-called violent crime. The other 96% were for things that cops should not be doing in the first place. Right. And that's, uh, a, that's an exercise that folks in Minneapolis encourage folks to do. And another friend of mine, um, Robin Maynard, does with her son, actually, um, is that to just look at where cops are in community. And think to yourself, does a cop need to be there? And what are they doing? And do they, if we decide someone needs to be doing what they're doing, does it need to be someone with a gun and the power to kill someone? Or could there be someone else there doing the thing better and without the violence of policing? And is there something that we could have done before to prevent whatever the condition is that we now think we need a cop to respond to, or we need someone else to respond to. In other words, there's a lot of sort of conversation about crisis intervention and response, but how about preventing the crisis from happening in the first place? What could we have backed up to make that possible? And if you play, and and literally this is a game that my friend plays with a five-year-old every day. There's a police station. What else could be there? What, there's a cop. What's he doing? What else could be there? What, and it's a game of imagination and it's a game of practical, um, sort of uh, rehearsal of the world that that we're trying to um, build and it's practical thinking about how we create safety together. Right. Uh, I'm going to, the second element is the violence of policing cannot be reformed. And just for folks, I just want to list off some of the reform's greatest hits list. Uh, cultural competency trainings, body cameras, hiring cops from the communities they will patrol, hiring more cops of color, uh, controversial perhaps, but also police commissions, right? falsely labeled as civilian oversight. Um, say more about element number two, the violence of policing cannot be reformed. I think the history of our efforts to do so really makes it clear that it further makes the case that police are doing exactly what they're set up to do. And that's why there's no, there's no changing that because that's their purpose. Um, and, you know, I think throughout um, both, both Mariam and I talk in No More Police about how throughout our, our organizing lives, we've at various points been engaged in thinking about how, because, you know, abolition is a process and, you know, there are, changes that can bring us closer, right? So at various times we've been seduced into thinking a particular change might bring us closer to um, the world we want or might reduce the harms of policing in the interim while we work towards that. And often they backfire, right? Um, Tasers are a good example. People thought, oh, let's just get cops to have tasers so they have something to reach for that's not a gun um and we see what happened you know in oscar grant's case but also we see how cops use tasers to break up fights in schoolyards right use tasers on elderly uh black women who you know refuse to open the door for them because they don't think that the cop has a right to be there use tasers on pregnant people use tasers on people in mental distress or who are um intoxicated at, with all to deadly effect right so um that wasn't a really successful reform because they just got and they also 90 percent of people they use them on in some areas were black and so it's clear that it's just a, another weapon to be used against the same people um That's right. You know, 
I have at times thought, well, if we just maybe made clear to them how they should interact with queer and trans people, it might reduce the harm of some of those interactions. Absolutely has not been successful (laughs) at all. So, you know, departments have the best policies in paper and are behaving the exact same way. Um, And I think Minneapolis is a really clear example of this too. You know, they had all of the best practices, gold standard, Department of Justice recommended policies in place. Derek Chauvin had been to, you know, all the trainings that told him to not do exactly what he did. The cop who killed Rayshard Brooks had been to 2,000 hours of de-escalation training. Clearly didn't de-escalate, right? So it just, I think the proof is in the pudding. And I think we have to just, as I said, look at the truth, have a clear-eyed look at history, at a clear-eyed look at every commission that has made the same recommendations or similar recommendations or technology we thought was going to save us that didn't and just decide, draw a line in the sand and say, we're not going to keep throwing more good money after bad. We're not going to keep banging our heads against the same wall. We're going to recognize police for what it is. And we're going to start building the things that we need. And a little bit of a local angle on the, the, the taser point, uh, a, a couple things. One Reuters did an excellent report few years ago about the deadliness of tasers. Uh, two, OPD tased to death a, a black man named Marcellus Tony here in 2017, uh, who was in the middle of a mental health crisis. And at his vigil, Terha Ah, co-founder of APTP and, and sort of my partner in crime, uh, um, at, at that rally said, it's not about the weapons they have in hands. If you arm them with a bouquet of flowers, they will choke us to death right. with that bouquet. And element number three, Andrea J. Ritchie, we can create safety beyond policing. I think people can look to evidence of that every single day in their lives. You know, every day that someone gets up and is in a home that feels safe to them and is, you know, um, is does not have violence inside or outside or around it and is able to have a healthy meal and go out into the world and be their best selves and, and act from their highest human potential and come home and, you know, go to bed at night um, having feeling accomplished and satisfied with their day and joyful. We've created safety without policing. (laughs) We didn't need a cop outside the door. We didn't need, you know, a cop following them down the street. We didn't need a cop at their, you know, place of work or education to, you know, it just, we can create safety without police. Every time in your family that you figure out how to resolve something without violence or any time in a workplace situation where you have a courageous conversation with a colleague and you come to an answer that is mutually satisfactory, we are creating safety without policing. And we need to look at what is required to do that. And often, Mariam and I start off our workshops and conversations with asking folks what to remember a time they felt safe or um, to list the things that they feel like they need to be safe. And it's housing, food, income, you know, um, uh, education, healthcare, things, you know, green space, community space, knowing that other people around care about them. Uh, Sometimes people say, I need conflict resolution skills. I need de-escalation skills. I need um, communities to come together and have shared practices and values around safety. It's very rarely someone leads with, I need a cop to follow me around everywhere all day, every day. (laughs) 
he uh, might make a lot of his film less safe. Very unsafe. And, yeah, Mariam <laughs> writes about how, you know, the presence of cops to her signals unsafety, not safety. Um, and But the cops have just, uh, we talk about it being sort of a, a protection racket, right? They're just like, give us money and we'll give you safety. Oh, you didn't give us enough money. Give us more money and we'll give you safety. Oh, no, you didn't give us enough money. Uh, if you give us more money, we'll actually create safety. And and then meanwhile, they're taking away the money for housing, the money for healthcare, the money for education, the money for parks, the money for libraries, the money for community mediation programs, the money for all the things, you know, domestic violence prevention and intervention and healing and transformation programs, the violence interruption programs that we talked about at work, they're taking away money for all those things while continuing continuing to say, if you just give us more, we'll actually create what you need. And it's, it, I think it's time for us to just look at the truth of what's happening and then, you know, at least make a decision to uh, move resources towards, that's why we say the defund demand is, is the first step, the basement, um, as Mariam puts it, is, you know, let's start with moving resources away from that, which isn't working towards the things that we know are working. Um, but we know there are things that are working. They're just grossly under-resourced compared to the hundred billion and more um, that we give to policing every year. So uh, that's, that's where the demand for defund starts. As you said, it's not the end, um, but it's definitely where we start. All right. I, I've, I've like 25 more questions here, but clearly nowhere near the time to ask you any of them, except for this one more. And then mm -hmm. uh, we, we will wrap up. Uh, I know my engineer's like, okay, Kat. Uh, well, but I'm one of a the little rambling myself. So thank <laughs> no, you no, no, for no. There, there's just, there's <laughs> so it. much, there's just so much to, to, to get into here. Uh, but one of the, the, and one of the chapters in the book that I gravitated to the most was the one on experimenting and building. Mm. there's this unrealistic expectation that our movements, right, are supposed to get it all right and all right now, mm -hmm. uh, even in the face of the reality that policing has been failing for hundreds of years. And if you just talk just, just a little bit, that we're going to end on this note about the importance of space, patience, willingness to learn, tweak, try again, uh, while we implement community safety plans that do not utilize police or prisons. I, I just, I think, you know, I wish, I'm kind of wishing Mariam was here and I'll do my best to channel because she, she, she would rant about this, but I, it's ridiculous to think that communities that have been experiencing organized abandonment and deprivation of resources for decades while police have been getting a hundred billion a year, but also all the legitimacy of all the TV shows and the politicians and everyone proclaiming that they are the only path to safety. Um, that somehow between three and five in the morning, you and me and the $3 we have to rub together will have come up with something that will meet all of the needs of communities that have been robbed of resources for decades and who are living under a system that concentrates wealth in the pockets of people like Jeff Bezos and takes it out of our own. And that somehow you and me and three of our friends are going to have enough pooled together to, to meet intergenerational trauma and vast, you know, need in our communities uh, like overnight. And that we'll have to also not only prove that we can do it for our communities, we have to prove that we can scale it up into something that looks exactly like cops. It has to look like someone you can call for a one size fits all solution to any problem you might have. That is a ridiculous proposition. 
And certainly the cops are never required to prove that their thing works. But we somehow are, and the proof is that it doesn't, obviously. But somehow we have to come up with all of that. And, you know, like I said, between three and five in the morning with $5 that we had to write 50 grant reports for and 200 proposals for. Um, and also in our spare time. And I just, which we don't have because we're working three jobs to make ends meet. Like I just, it's preposterous when you put it, when you look at it that way, but that is actually what's being demanded by politicians. And so, um, and certainly the one time something goes wrong in the little thing that we cook up with cat, you know, somebody gets hurt, somebody gets hurt, something doesn't go well. Oh, well we throw the whole thing out. Meanwhile, cops stay killing over a thousand people a year. And never do we say, mm, maybe this, <laughs> this, this experiment doesn't seem to be working over hundreds of years. Right. So I think that's the part that, um, it's hard. It's hard when we're talking to funders. It's hard when we're talking to community members. Where it's hard when we're talking to um, policymakers to say. And but Mariam says it all the time. We don't need to have the answers. We don't need to have. We are building. We're going to do that together. But what we do know is we need the resources to start, and we need the time and the space and the room, imagination room, to do it. And we need recognition of when what we are doing is working. Um, without it having to work in every instance all the time for all people in all places overnight. Because what we do know is that what we have is not working for the vast majority of people, the vast majority of time in the vast majority of places. You are listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We've been talking to Andrew J. Ritchie. Ritchie is a nationally recognized expert on policing and criminalization and supports organizers across the country who are working to build safer communities. She's a co-founder of Interrupting Criminalization and the author of Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color. Her latest book is No More Police, A Case for Abolition, which she co-authored with Miriam Kaba, a leading prison and police abolitionist. Thank you so much for joining us today, Andrea. Thanks so much for having me, Kat, but also thank you so much for all the ways that you have contributed to this moment and that you have made it possible through your organizing, Invisible and Visible, which is the kind of work that tills the soil for the future that we're building and longing for. So I just, I'm grateful to always to be in conversation, but also to be able to learn from and be in struggle with you. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fortnart Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.